0: Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Lisa Teasley is the author of two novels, Heat Signature and Dive, and two short story collections, Glow in the Dark and Out This Month, Fluid. Her stories and essays have been widely anthologized, including in Flash Fiction America and The Passenger, California. She is the writer and presenter of the BBC television documentary High School Prom and is currently writing a commissioned opera libretto. She's also an incredible visual artist. We will hopefully talk about all of that. She joins me today to talk about Fluid. We chat about her various approaches to short stories versus novels, the traditional short stories versus flash fiction. We talk about how quickly to orient your readers into a fictive world, how to enter and leave a short story, the tricky topic of titling your work, how her visual work impacts her fiction. And of course, we'll play my favorite game that I always love to do with short fiction, which is Let's Dissect Your Story. Before I bring her on, we have some fun new news. We just started an affiliation program with bookshop.org where you can shop for the books of the authors who come on the show, as well as Barbara and my some of our favorite books. Purchasing books through that site gives both money to independent bookstores and a a little bit of money to keep the show going, Uh, but it's a great way to support independent bookstores and to shop for books. You can find us there at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Again, that's bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. And Lisa's book will be up there and available at the end of this month to buy there, as well as uh, the books from past guests from the show. So check that out. As always, check out our Patreon page. If you like to support the show that way, you get a few additional tips and perks and um, writing prompts throughout the month, you can find us there at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Finally, feel free to leave us a review however you consume your podcasts on Apple, Amazon, however you do those. If you leave us a review, that helps us out as well. All right, on with the show. Lisa Teasley, welcome
1: thank you so much for having me Marie I'm really really happy to be
0: here you know I realized the last time we talked was in March of 2007 when heat signature came out so oh, yes. we only have 16 years worth of catching up to do in the next <laughs> in the next hour <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were releasing books pretty steadily back in the early 2000s and and then you know maybe you took a break from writing or maybe you just took a break from publishing but yeah catch us up a little bit
1: So I would say that after Heat Signature came out and it received really, it received glowing reviews as did Dive, but I feel as if, and this is entirely my fault, no one said anything to me, I feel as if because I didn't make back my advances, that shied me in some way in terms of pushing another book forward. Mm. And so I didn't step back from writing this whole time. During that whole period, I've been writing short stories and they were being published in literary journals, such as Black Clock at CalArts, which is also where I I taught at CalArts for a year. I taught at UC Riverside. I taught at the UCLA Writers Program. And then in 2015, I started editing at Los Angeles Review of Books, and I was there up until two years ago when I decided, you know, in terms of putting my all in teaching and in editing, I was shortchanging myself in terms of focusing on putting a book together. And so I did that, and then that's how Fluid came about.
0: I love hearing this story because, A, I feel it's super relatable And B, I feel like it gives voice to just a lot of the kind of, not shame, but just like the fears that writers carry around with them that stop them from working. And, you know, maybe I'm just speaking about myself here, but I feel like, you know, it's just like in fiction, when you read something that you're like, oh, people do that too? I didn't know because we don't talk about it or people feel that way too. And yeah, I just feel like these stories are... Relatable to writers. Either they feel like they're taking too long to write something, or they feel like they don't have something worthy enough to say, or they feel like other people's fiction should take a front seat to their back seat, whatever it
1: is. Right, um, right. It also took me a really long time to get my first book deal because, so I had a story collection ready to go in 1989 after publishing in a lot of different literary magazines at that time. And an agent from William Morris, Matt Bialer, approached me and said, you know, that he would like to represent me, but that I needed a novel, you know, that that a short story collection would be harder to sell than a novel uh, the first time around. And so I wrote a novel and I was happy with it, actually. And so he shopped it around everywhere. I mean, every single house read it. And this was in the 90s, like the early to mid 90s. And every house said, what are we going to do with a black female writer who is writing about characters who are not, you know, uh, in the ghetto or involved in incest? Or I mean, like they were saying all these really horrible stereotypes, because I write about all kinds of people. And so, and that was another issue. How do we, what, how do we deal with a black female writer who has characters of different races and different cultures and all this? And so, um, so nothing happened with the book until Zadie Smith, Zadie Smith's White Teeth was published in 2001. And I got, I got a book deal with Kuhn Press for my story collection. So I actually came out first with the stories. So, Good Lord,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you
1: know, so there've been these these wow. big gaps. <laughs> Good Lord, <laughs> what is gaps running then gaps? You know, and so, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean,
0: I guess that's that's the other part of the equation is that where the publishing world and and the regular world is at. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what to say about your story. That's that's horrific, but I. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess one thing that would be published at one time might not be published at another time. And I mean, your story is a horrific example of that. I do think the world, especially in the last 16 years for mostly for bad, I suppose, for good and for bad in a lot of ways, good has changed so much that, yeah, yeah, the acceptance of different voices. And yes. Yeah. Wow. You know, I thought I had this whole separate narrative in my head because I know you're such an amazing visual artist. And so I was like, well, I think she just pivoted all of this amazing creativity because, you know, in the when you were publishing in the early 2000s, I was like, this woman is a rock star. And I just, you know, kind of became obsessed with watching you on social media. And I was like, I guess she's just doing visual art now. So it is it is interesting, these narratives.
1: Yeah. (laughs) yes
0: oh uh, well let's dive a little bit into the latest collection so fluid is coming out later this month so yeah so these 16 stories i am so excited to talk about because they're they're united not by recurring characters or by similar geography but they are united by these themes of like failed connections and complicated love and desire and sort of our modern day slide into dystopia, maybe. But tell me a little bit about the time period over which these 16 stories congealed, and kind of what was on your mind as you were assembling
1: the collection. So what was first and foremost in my mind are these particularly challenging issues in our lives right now. For example, the first story, Death is Beautiful, the two men are discussing AI and transhumanism and, and whether or not AI deserves rights, for example. And so there's that philosophical discussion, as well as immortality versus mortality, a finite life, the merit or value in both in terms of thinking that way. And then there's a character who is dealing, who's a surrogate, you know, that's her, her life choice of making a living. And from the point of view of her son, of her young son, how he deals with, um, you know, when there are complications, you know, with the IVF, there are issues with like the last story deals with a bit in, you know, in terms of post pandemic or a little bit, you know, during pandemic. So in terms of the stories written during the last couple of years, I was very much thinking about what we're coping with now. And then in terms of what I've always been most concerned with is what it is to be human. So, of course, it's about relationships and how characters navigate through the world, you know, like what their vulnerabilities are, whether they they feel as if life happens to them or for them. And so, so that's, that's really how I approach a story is that I begin with the character. I begin with how it is that they walk into a room. Do they feel as if all eyes are on them or do they feel as if they are observing and, you know, and can just kind of, you know, melt into, you know, the wallpaper and therefore the people in their lives, I discover then who it is that they're dealing with and what is their what is their biggest conflict in their journey is that how you
0: approach novels as well starting with that character and following them into a room or or is your approach into a novel different
1: it is very similar in that w- with a novel because it's so much more time that I'm spending with the characters i take a lot of notes in terms of you know like their you know do they have siblings where were they born how did the terrain affect who they are what happened to them in their childhood what is the wound that they're carrying i go a lot deeper psychologically in terms of ter- taking notes before i really get started in in the writing when it comes to novels but when it comes to the short story i just it's like just go go with this instinct of who who you feel this character to be
0: I didn't really count in these stories and I have no ability to do a word count, but some of these I would classify certainly as flash and some of these I would classify as more kind of traditional length short stories. Yes. And so I was wondering if we could have just a little conversation about flash versus traditional short story and whether apart from word count, there are rules or things (laughs) that you apply to a piece of flash fiction that might be a little different different than, than a traditional short story length piece, if that makes
1: sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, this is, <laughs> is going to sound very naive, but I didn't really even know that I was writing flash fiction until two years ago when the Flash Fiction America uh, editor went to Cune Press to get the rights to one of the stories in Glow in the Dark. And then mm-hmm. I went, Oh, so I am also a flashback. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> so it's never been in my intent as, as much as however, however many words it takes to complete the, the particular story about these particular characters is just where it goes. So I don't begin knowing how, you know, what kind of story it is.
0: You know what I feel like about flash fiction? I don't know if this is true or not, but and ma- and maybe it's all on a continuum, you know, like human sexuality. It's just it's all a continuum of flash fiction to five volume uh novels. I don't know. But flash fiction just gives me this spark of emotion. Like I might not even come away knowing that much about the character, and I might not even care, but I just have some kind of gut punch experience like you know like a encounter on the street where you don't have to know that much but you know you're kind of a little bit changed by it after it's over
1: right 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 and
0: um short story moving down the continuum a little bit we we know a little bit more of the the character arc even if it's much shorter but that ability to really kind of punch somebody in the gut in less than a thousand words. I don't know, maybe you just, you know, it's, you can't describe how you do it. But when it's done, you know, you know, it's been done.
1: Yes, it's true. And I think that, um, and back then when glow in the dark came out in 2002, and the stories were written 1998 through 2001, there are what would be considered flash fiction, about three or four pieces. And at the time, I thought, oh, these are sort of like vignettes, you know, like interstitials. But after the fact, you know, like in putting the stories together with the editor, you know, in terms of order. And we ordered Glow in the Dark in terms of place, whereas before I was thinking about it more in terms of of what was going on with the characters. But the editor and publisher, Scott Davis, who actually died last year, and his memorial is is this coming Sunday. He thought that we should put it together in terms of place. And so it was LA, New York, Mexico, Northern California, and Paris. And that made so much more sense because of the fact that place is very much a character to me because both of the novels that I've written, that Dive is set in Florida, and in California and in Alaska. And all three of those states very much inform the action and the characters. And then in Heat signature, the main character lives in Joshua Tree and he's remembering his mother who had been murdered 15 years prior in San Diego. And when her murderer is released, he goes on this road trip up the California coast and he ends up in Oregon and so all, all of these places and then he discovers as well that his mother had spent time with his grandmother in Portland so all of these places very much influence his state of mind and and uh, and the the people that he he meets and all of that and so then as a teacher of writing I have given exercises in terms of setting in place for a writer. I I feel that for a very full picture of who this person is, that where they live and where they have lived and where they're going, or if they're traveling and in that state of, you know, while traveling, you're not quite yourself. You're a little more vulnerable because you don't know what's going to happen. You're not in your habits. And so I have, Pointed that out as something to take into consideration as you're writing because it's a very interesting state of being place. So, yeah, so all of that, I think I take all of those things much more into consideration than I do length.
0: That's interesting. I was just talking to somebody about how an airport is a great setting because everybody's yeah. off their game. At an yes. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And
0: airports are such weird liminal spaces of, you know, they all look alike and time has both heightened meaning and no meaning. And yeah, I love all of that. And Yes. Important to place. Yes. Yes. So as you were assembling this, now that I'm trying to flood back on looking at the ordering of the collection, it was done by place. Is that I'm trying to think of how these were ordered. Is that well, how so this, somebody said it this,
1: No, this one, I put it in an order that felt like I was trying to go for a fluid, you know, a flow. And so that's why it's called fluid that I, I was asking of myself and asking of the reader to be in a kind of flow between these very different kinds of characters in different kinds of situations. Different kinds of moments in their lives. So that's the, and I'm I'm hoping that that the that the order is that there is a flow to it.
0: As you're saying that, I'm now hearkening back to her name just flew out of my head. But there's a book about the different ways you can shape a narrative beyond the traditional Freitag pyramid, and fluidity is one of those. But it's spiral. Anyway, it's it's different ways of shaping something. And a couple of writers that have come on the show have talked about and I'm and I'm curious about this with your visual arts work, talked about thinking of the novel and maybe this collection as a particular shape. And I'm really mm. loving this idea of it being this, you know, sort of fluid river that is, you know, passing all of these different geographies and different characters in their own landscapes and something beyond the the rising action the climactic moment the Mm. (laughs) denouement you know I think that that's really beautiful and I also wanted to point out the opening story and the closing story those two bookends so the opening story as you talked about is this grappling with AI and immortality and the closing story uh, deals with euthanasia and end-of-life issues And those two bookends, which I'm sure were a thousand percent intentional, I thought worked really, really beautifully with the the middle of the book dealing with relationships, desire. Yes, so so you're talking about surrogacy, all of these muddy, missed connections, lost connections, the the stuff in the middle of life. That was really
1: elegant. Thank you so much. That means so much to me.
0: Rebecca Mackay just did an interesting piece this week that's gotten me thinking about orienting the reader. And when it's done well, you don't even notice that you're being oriented <laughs> because yeah. it's, it's just natural. But for new writers, it's very difficult. And it's super easy to lose the reader where they're like, I don't know what's happening or where we are. And I was reading these stories with that in mind because a lot of these are kind of taking place in, you need to be oriented, let's just say, in in a lot of these. (laughs) And you do it so subtly, and we never get lost. And I know that that's not by mistake. So I wonder if there's anything you can say about, especially on these flash fiction pieces where you don't have a lot of time, settling the reader down so we know where we are we kind of know when you know the time period the story is taking place without using date and time stamps,
1: mm-hmm. how
0: you get the reader settled into a story. And if that happens, you know, maybe that happens more in the revision process than in the original draft. But are there things you can say about that? In terms
1: of orienting the reader, I I really feel as if I'm so character driven that I'm am, trying to reveal the character's psychology and the spirit there, you know, for example, in the, the first story, the gestures that, so the two men who are speaking to each other, the gestures that they make in terms of, you know, looking, holding, you know, their throat, one holds his throat when he's feeling perhaps attacked, these kinds of, I'm trying, I'm, I want the, the reader to be able to see them as well as feel them so that they're in the room with them. And so, so that part is very important to me in terms of the reader knowing exactly where they are and who they're with. And so if it's a very short story, then it's even more important that you know exactly who they are right away in terms of the the situation being a very dramatic you know something extremely dramatic happening in their life at this moment so that's that's how i approach it but i'm also in a kind of um i think like in the the, the sense that you know charles dickens said that all of his characters live in a in a realm you know so then he you know he all he does is he goes into that realm to be with them. And I remember also Alice Walker saying that these characters said to her uh, before she was writing The Color Purple, oh, we need you to be in this place to for us to really come through. There is, uh, you know, like as crazy or woo-woo or, whatever, or however any of that sounds, I do have that allegiance to the character where I am kind of, taken over by them like it's their truth and i'm not really manipulating anything other than making sure that the reader has a sense of where they're standing and who else is around them and what they're looking at you know and so so that those those kinds of descriptions to ground the narrative in terms of who they are they're in control of that and i don't I don't manipulate the plot. I don't I'm not the kind of writer who plots anything out. I like I in other words I don't know what's going to happen. Not in the novels and not in the stories. I just know when it's finished and I'm just as surprised.
0: Is that a similar experience to your visual
1: art? Whenever I've been asked about how does my visual art inform my writing? I have always it surprises me every time when I say because it is the truth that they don't inform each other at all like it's it's like a different way of expressing completely when I'm painting, I feel as if I'm free because when when I'm writing, <laughs> I'm taken over by by someone else or by someone else someone's else you know and um, when I'm painting I'm you know standing in front of the canvas and it's me and the paints and I have music on and I can stop and dance and there's a lot of freedom in it and it's physical and it's physical and visual whereas the writing I'm I'm captive. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Good you're giving language to how hard writing is. <laughs> it's hell. <laughs> no, but I totally I totally know what you mean. Well, that that sort of answers my question about whether you are giving visual language to your story language, like if you have these characters visually in mind or if you ever step out and paint, you know, what you see in the story because one of these stories, I think it was the first story in the collection was reprinted somewhere and they paired it with a really not your painting, but a really cool painting that reminded me of the, the sunflowers on or the, um, the flowers on the,
1: yes. the guy's office wall. <laughs> yes. And the Mark has review. Yes.
0: Yeah. I didn't know if you went through that exercise on your own to paint any of your stories, but. That would be no, fun.
1: no. And the, the editor, um, Jordan Elgood, he did a beautiful job in choosing the art to go with the story. I was really pleased with that.
0: Oh, it was great. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, in terms of orienting the reader, I wanted to pluck out the beginning of, um, there's a story kind of right dead center in the collection called Modus Operandi. Yes. And the opening of it does so many things so well, does a lot of heavy lifting, and I thought maybe we could Read it first and then talk about
1: it. Sure. What is Upper End die? Up? When we get to Toby's father's house in L.A., the girlfriend has her panties strung up on a clothesline across the deathbed. His father isn't dead yet. This is two months before when Toby's still willing to go with the situation. During the past 20 years, he's met quite a few of his father's girlfriends, all grifters, not that their greed or indifference matter much to Toby. I'm enraged.
0: Yes, I just love that in six lines, you have accomplished so much. So we we know where we are. doesn't really matter what the time frame is, but we know where we are. We know all of these complicated relationships. We know sort of the whole history of this man and his dad. We know who the narrator is. We know the narrator's position on things versus toby's position on things and we get this just completely evocative image of this underwear hanging over this guy's deathbed <laughs> um it's great <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. yes so in the in the service of doing that thing that i love to do with short story writers which is to dissect things and, and pick stories apart maybe we can start with this one can you remember back before you had even started this story of like the first kernel of what occurred to you and and kind of what you were thinking about before the story became what it is now?
1: So she came to me, I saw her when she was on a trip to New Mexico and taking notice of this beautiful staircase. And then the fact that she has this boyfriend who she feels inferior to in terms of education and background and that you know that her boyfriend has this fancy architect father and that she is from from new york and and you know live and had lived with her mother and they had struggled and that here this boyfriend you know, had had such a privileged life and that here Here you meet her as she is coming to meet who would have been her father-in-law if she, you know, gets to marry this. If in her mind she wants to marry Toby or she wants to be his, you know, forever partner. And so everything that is in her way, she feels like she has to get rid of. And so if the father is in her way, she's going to get rid of him. So I just saw that this kind of life is unfair kind of thing, but here I have a chance and I'm not going to, you know, not going to mess this up. So it's called modus operandi because it's like, this is her MO that I'm not going to let anything stop me. And so she was, <laughs> she was shocked. To me, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> As well as her, you know, her, perceived foe the minute that, you know, she gets there, It's the, the father's girlfriend that she has to get rid of.
0: Was this opening always the opening, the image of these panties hanging over his deathbed?
1: Yes, it was. It, it really was because it was, it symbolized the intimacy that the father has when she meets him. And even so, this is not going to deter her you know, from, you know, getting to him in order to take control of the situation.
0: Yeah. Over the course of how long did it take you to write this piece, which is, I should
1: say, like eight pages long. I think it took about what well, it, so it was Steve Erickson who was editing Black Clock that, um, and I, and I believe that the, uh, Oh, I don't want to speak out of turn because now I don't remember what the theme was, but he would always come to the writers with what theme was. Mm. I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't MO, but it was something, it might've been noir. And so I thought, okay, noir. And then I, and if the if the deadline was maybe a month or two, I just started to th- think about who, who am I going to be with You know, for this, and then she came to me, and so I wrote it in either that month or two months.
0: So I love this idea that you were a working on a deadline and b working within some constraint of a
1: theme. Yes, I actually love it. I actually, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) because you have to turn it in, and so you have you can't you can't um, make excuses for why it's not working. Yes, go. You just go.
0: Yeah, no, I I find constraints to be almost critical for me to get to get anything done.
1: Yes. And that's how journalism has been a great teacher for me, even being on the high school newspaper. And, you know, the the weekly high school newspaper, my first mentor, Montserrat Fontes, she actually said, you know, when I was in that class in her journalism class, she said, oh, you have a talent for fiction. She could tell from there that that's where I was going to go. But what I loved was when I had an assignment to interview, whether it was, you know, the school principal or I remember I, I interviewed a DJ, you know, like a star DJ. I interviewed like a um, a band that was popular at the time and, you know, just like stuff that a high school kid would do. And I loved that I only had a week to put it all together. And so I I felt like that was great training for deadlines in terms of writing fiction. Whenever I haven't had a deadline, then I let it drag out. Oh, yes. Uh, Oh, oh, yes. Like all those years, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And so when Scott Davis was approached by Sherry Flick, who was editing Flash Fiction America, And then, you know, I was added to the thread for the permission. Then afterwards, you know, Scott said to me, what are you doing? Let's let's do a book. Fantastic. So that is so it's 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 like I had to be pulled back in, you know, (laughs) and with a deadline to to get it together. And he missed, you know, me pulling this all together. It was right. He died right before. Uh, we were talking on the phone about the title, and he said, You know, it's just gonna come to you. It's just gonna, because we were batting around all these different, like using titles from the uh, collection Death is Beautiful or Random Kid in a Black Hole, Glossolalia, you know, some of these titles. But then each, the titles of each of these stories didn't fit the, you know, all of the stories. Yeah. So fluid eventually came to me, but without Scott, and
0: mm. it
1: was so heartbreaking, you know, but I, I feel like um, in the same way that my 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 father died last year as well, I've been dealing with a lot of death in the last few day, last few years, as a lot of people have. But what I find is I'm still in contact with my parents on the other side. You know, and it's 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 something that has you know when I was a little kid, I saw ghosts, and I put that in quotation marks. You know, and I could see and feel and hear ghosts, and that's that's been that's been part of my reality. You know, and so maybe too, that's why I feel characters as being real before I quote unquote create them. Like I don't at all feel as if I'm creating them. Whereas when I'm at the easel. I am creating this painting. There's no one steering me in any direction. No one else but me.
0: We'll be back with more from Lisa Teasley and the short story collection Fluid in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to support the show and a way to keep in touch with us and get a few writing tips and tricks along the way. You can visit Patreon slash writers on writing any amount helps us out and also a reminder to check us out on the new bookshop.org website bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing you can do all of your book buying up there now and help out independent bookstores and help the show out just a little bit let's get back to it with lisa teasley talking about the short story collection fluid Well, let's stay on that topic of titles for just a minute, because I think titles are so tricky. And you had to do 17 of them with the 16 stories plus the plus the title of the book. <laughs>
1: right.
0: So many titles. Uh, just sticking with modus operandi for a moment. So you said, yes, that was her MO. At what point did you know that was the title? Do you come up with it early on so that you're writing towards something? Or do you have to wait for the whole story to gel to stand back from it and see it?
1: I think that the title came as I was writing it because it was just so clear that it had been, I don't know when the last time was that I had been with a character who so knew exactly what she was going to do and where she was going to go and how this was going to go down. i just found her so shockingly controlling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i could see no other title <laughs> there was
0: a story you read a long time ago it, it was on youtube i think you were like giving a class at usc and there was a story you read about a girl who's in this house where these women are having oh my god the word just flew oh in my head. uh oh um
1: surgery uh plastic surgery plastic surgery
0: yes yeah was, like, some sort of surgery yes they so they and And they didn't want anyone to see them, but it was okay for her to see them because, Mm -hmm. you know, she was considered less than uh, or her mother to see them considered less than. And there was something about that story that reminded me just a little bit of this. And she was not going to have it.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. And um, that's a, a great example of a story where it came from my past so this was at my grandmother's house at my grandmother's house the neighbor was a nurse and so this was in the late 70s so i was like 10 or something and so i and I used to play with the the boy next door like play we would you know ride our bikes and all that and this one day when we went to the liquor store to get candy and I had, and I remembered I had to, you know, I had to pee. And so this story really was a, this was, you know, biography, mm. autobiographical, and he wouldn't allow me to use the restroom. And I remember that look that he gave us. It was just so, it was like, it was like the first time that I became aware, really, really aware of racism as a child like okay here it is this is it you know and then when we got home and i can't remember why it was if i was too embarrassed to to go into my grandmother's house to get cleaned up or why it was that i went into his house but then he said oh we have to sneak in because my mom is busy with her you know she, he didn't call her call him patience i can't remember what he what he called them, but when, so he, he, you know, took me into the bathroom, I got cleaned up and we came back out. And then I said, so why, I don't understand this. And he said, well, she takes care of white women who can't be seen. And so they stay with us. So then when I talked to my parents and my grandmother about it, they, they, they had to then explain racism to me. So it was just this, it was kind of like a, like a a turning point because I don't think that even because I was, you know, we, I grew up in Baldwin Hills and I was bused for elementary school in Bel Air and it was, it began as a private enterprise. Like it was Burt Lancaster, you know, who back then was a big movie star and, and some of the other men who were proponents of integration in Bel Air got together with my father and other black businessmen and, you know, in Baldwin Hills at the time was kind of seen as like the black Beverly Hills. And it was kind of like, we're bringing these kinds of black kids to our neighborhood. And the first time that the bus went up the hill, you know, there were rocks thrown, but Mm. I didn't, it was like, I was, how old I was six or something. Mm. And you know it was just sort of you don't really know what kind of journey you're on you know and then but it wasn't until this you know plastic surgery you know and the riding the bike to the liquor store that it all just came together and my my grandmother lived in the Adams district which is now have, you know here in Los Angeles which is very much gentrified and but at the time was mostly black or if not entirely so anyway that's that story came from And I don't, I don't write autobiographical stories very often at all. But that's Mm -hmm. where that story came from. Why I could never be boogie.
0: Yeah. And then to be told in the nineties, what, for publishers to tell you what your lane is, which is uh, as I'm trying to reinterpret what you were saying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Wow. Do you feel, especially in the last five or six years that you have a, platform that needs to be used I don't feel that at all in these stories um
1: I don't think that I'm considered that kind of black writer who is writing about black issues and um, and that sort of thing so I'm still in that you know sort of nebulous you know well the category it's literary fiction yeah. You know, right. and, I, and I'm doing the air quotes, every, you know, every time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. You know, um, and so it's it, it's, you know, how else do you, you know, describe it? Because you can't because no one can say, oh, she's writing black fiction.
0: Right. Well, let's do if we can do one more of these. I love this exercise, <laughs> as you can tell. <laughs> um, was there a story in here that gave you a lot of fits <laughs> it was really difficult to pin down or that you know you worked on longer than you worked on some of the other ones
1: I'm looking at the titles and I would say random kid in a black hole because I had to make sure that it was grounded because it's it, because again that is a 10 year old and I don't write about about children very often and then we happen to be talking about the maybe the two stories that I've written from the point of view of a child. I pretty much always write about people from the ages of, from their 20s to maybe 40s. fifty. I tend to be in that range, because I find it an interesting age where, especially in the 30s, it's like, old enough to know better, but maybe, you know, not, not completely wizened. And so a lot is happening, you know? Uh, And so, so I find that an interesting, and it's not like I say, okay, now I'm going to write about, you know, these people in their thirties or, or in their twenties, but it just happens because of what's happening in their life.
0: You know, they're relatable. Yeah. 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 Little boys with pet anteaters. Yeah, <laughs> yes, there's a
1: little. Yeah, the little boys with anteaters. It was a li- it was a lot trickier because of who, as he's trying to to deal with such heavy issues with his mother, who we find is sitting there bleeding on the toilet because the IVF isn't working, and then his relationship with his grandmother and how his grandmother is, is his rock, and he does have this exotic pet, the anteater. You know, talks about like how. there's, there's history involved. So I had to, with that story, I had to ground the reader with some history in terms of, you know, how they got from the South to Los Angeles, you know, what his mother is like, not only through his eyes, you know, which is tricky, because we are in his eyes. And so I would say I spent the most time making sure that that story was grounded.
0: And tell me how you decided on him as the narrator, on Randy as the narrator, as opposed to, I feel like, you know, in a lesser writer's hands, it could have been either the woman herself, or it could be, you know, her mother, somebody with a more wizened perspective. But now you have to deal with this boy who really doesn't understand what's going on and why.
1: Yes. Well, I briefly met a surrogate aunt who had a kid. And so... Just the one meeting there. It was like uh, because from afar, I thought, "Wow, what is that like?" You know, every time I had heard, you know, any time in the news or you know, because I don't know anyone personally who's gone through it, I'd always think, "What is that whole process like?" Or even, or films, you know, and what what would it be like for a kid whose mother, you know, is doing this? So then I just imagined what it was like to be him. And found Randy, or Randy found me, and it was really a special kind of experience. Just yeah. Because again, I don't, I don't write a lot about, about kids.
0: And that he's male and not and female. He, yeah, yes, because yes. yes. the women's, women's bodies are so mysterious to even grown men, I think. <laughs> to little kids.
1: But the other thing that's funny is that I've never, because I, I used to get asked this a lot, because Both novels, for example, are from the point of view, like, uh, have male protagonists. And I'm very comfortable writing men. And how I've answered that question in the past, and I think this is still the answer, is because I was tall as a kid, so I would play ball with the boys. And I found that when they would give me messages, you know, like love messages for the girls that they had crushes on, that I was, you know, again, air quotes, I was the interpreter, uh, you know, like what they, what the boys were saying to the girls, I was going to give the message to this girl and, you know, and explain what it is that he feels for her. And I remember as that kid just thinking, there's no difference other than culturally what is put on the boy and put on the girl, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, Mm -hmm. that's why what's happening now with gender is so to me, freeing and so beautiful because of what I saw back then. And so this narrating for a boy or narrating as a boy, as a kid and saying, oh, it's just different language, different posture, different expectations, became an interesting place to be. And because I was spending a lot more time with them anyway. And I find that with the past three books, most of the letters the letters that i've gotten from people have been from men so i have a lot of male readers and some of them said god i love the way you get a man
0: yeah. yes <laughs> i think i was one of those interviewers back in the day 16 years ago i i think we talked about that then <laughs> <Yeah>. yes <laughs> so tell me about the title of this one and when it came and how it came random kid in a black hole random <laughs> kid in a
1: black hole so it was about his feeling lost, because I actually, I don't feel as if anything is random. This is my personal belief about life. I don't really believe so much in chance. I kind of feel that there is a beautiful kind of orchestration and serendipity, whether that is positive or negative, that is happening in, in every single choice that we make, whether it is to walk out the door and go get a coffee or not do it has already informed what's going to happen in that day, you know And so I feel as if this kid who is feeling like, you know wow, I, this my mo- this is what my mother does this is his reality is so different uh, you know than from perhaps most. And then again, I I also feel strange saying that because what is everyone's reality like actually? Everyone is living. In their own interior, that is very different from the next person. And so, his situation when I said random, when I'm saying random kid in a black hole, that when he was, he's in that space of, oh my God, is my mother gonna die? That's how he felt like I'm just some kid in the dark. And then, when he, but then when he's on the phone with his grandmother and his grandmother empowers him in the dark. You know, and empowers the situation and starts no. telling him what to do, telling her daughter what to do, and everything everything is now fine again. What I'm trying to say basically is that the title is the title is, is sort of for maybe for everyone when we're in that space, we just can't see what's gonna happen next. We don't know if we'll get out of this terrible hole and if we're just another person. Who is in this dark space?
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is a testament to how much work a title has to do without yes. hitting somebody too squarely on the nose with it and evoking all of this, which is what it does. It Just has to has to work on several levels, and it has to be metaphoric and pretty. And you know, it's,
1: yes, yes, it's but tough. I do care. I care very much about the rhythm and the art of language.
0: Well, we should spend our last couple of minutes together doing a little bit of the businessy stuff. This press that you're with, and you've been with them for at least two of the books, Kuhn Press, were all four books published through Kuhn Press? No. So the
1: hardcover of Glow in the Dark was published by Cune Press. And then Bloomsbury bought the paperback rights. And this is when Karen Rinaldi was head of Bloomsbury. And so Karen was my publisher at Bloomsbury for for both novels. So it was the paperback of Glow in the Dark, the hardcover, and the paperback of Dive, and then Heat Signature came out in paperback only. So that was that's four books altogether, really. So counting, you know, in counting, you no know, five, right? Because right. like it's a run, you know. It's like every, you know, once it when it's in hardcover and then the you know, when the paper rack comes out, it's like you—you you have to do the same thing. You have to get out there again, you know, right. And, right? and sell the book. And so, so yeah. So the business, and I don't know if this is w- what you're asking. What is the difference between a small press? And- well, I just
0: love what these what this press is doing, and I wonder if you're using a, a press like Kuhn Press. Do you have an agent that then pitches to them or do your you work? It
1: sounds like no, you're, you're kind of directly that, with them. Yeah, I, I work directly with them. You know, that's another curious. I, I've been on a curious adventure when it comes to agents. It just hasn't worked out for me, not through any fault of the agents. But, you know, I did make that first deal with Scott, you know, on my own for, Glow in the dark. And then I did the deal with Karen for the paperback rights and the first deal for the novel, Dive. And then when everyone was saying, you need an agent, you know, which pretty much that's, I've always, you know, I've I've always, you know, been told that. And so then I was with Lois Wallace, who at the time, had Don DeLillo and a a lot of big writers like that. And I don't want to say, and and I don't, I don't know when it was that she, she also died. I would say maybe in a couple of decades ago, maybe, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, or maybe 12 years ago, I should say, I didn't like the way she dealt with me, you know, when I was doing magazine writing, you know, and, the, this business of keeping, you know, like saying the checks hadn't cleared from like Time Inc. or you know, and the other thing was like Bloomsbury was wiring, wire transferring the money then. So now, now I'm getting into like sort of dirty, like dirty, but you know, it was like it wasn't. And I remember writing this email to her that was just angry and saying I'm done with you. And then the assistant wrote me and, and applauded me. Oh. Wow. So it was like, wow. you know, but that wow. that is not, you know, that is not a typical story, I don't think or hope. And so I just have been sort of, you know, like I did, I did my own deal with BBC for the television documentary, when they approached me, they had read glow in the dark. And they came through my website. And they said, you know, would you like to do we're doing this ser- American series? And would you like to take us on the journey of what, what American prom is. And I said, sure. And then I, I did that whole deal myself. And then I just did the, and I did the deal for the opera that I'm working on now. So, and I, it's not, it's, it's probably not ideal. And it's maybe speaks to to something in my personality. It's like, maybe I, I'm that kind of person who's like, I got to do it myself or, you know,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love this because I love unconventional, first of all, I love unconventional stories. And I love seeing that there's a thousand ways to do something and it's not get an agent or self-publish. There's a lot of middle ground. And I love these small presses. I think they do such good work. And so, Yeah, um, yeah, so I really appreciate hearing this story and appreciate hearing how many different ways there are to to get your book in the world. So yeah, that's really interesting to me and I think will be useful for other people to hear because in this in this age of nothing being binary, neither is publishing anymore, right? There's a right, lot
1: of- right, and it's so important to find the people who believe in you because if it wasn't for Scott Davis and Karen Rinaldi, I don't I don't know where I would be in terms of books because right. they believed in me.
0: And you're in our neighborhood, so you're going to have a ton of events coming up. I know you're doing the book launch party at Chevalier's yes. at the end of the month. Uh, yes, but, on, and
1: on Pup Day, September 26th, and then I'll be at Octavia's Bookshelf the next day on the 27th. So great. And then yeah. I go to New York, and I'm, also, I'm doing City Lights books in San Francisco virtually. Um, in conversation with Stephen Raines and then I'll be in New York at McNally Jackson and I'm doing book banter with Blue Cypress Books New Orleans and I'm doing Malaprops in Asheville so all of these places that I love you know places in the world that I love So I used to live in New York and Asheville is beautiful and you know and I, I think a lot of people in the world are in love with New Orleans you know oh yes oh, yes, yes. yes. <laughs>
0: yeah yes this is a great yeah that'll be a that'll be a great tour and people can find it on your website which is yes. i think just lisa com. and you've got yes. great interviews up there and your visual work is up there so people can see your paintings and they can check out the other three books and uh yeah there's a lot of information up there but this this was so fun do you have any last minute advice or wisdom that we should have said that we didn't say for writers?
1: <laughs> oh, for writers, I've just always gone with what Shakespeare said to thine own self be true. Mm. You really have to not let what the market air quotes, what the market is saying is what is selling right now. If you aren't true to your own voice and if you, you know, if you don't, believe in what you're doing then you'll just get washed away with the tide it's not it's not the way to go you really have to know thyself yeah. so true
0: yeah i've talked to so many writers who was it that was just came to publishing later in life i'll think of her name and put it in but she was talking about she she just spent like decades trying to copy other writers and you know yeah. it doesn't doesn't work <laughs> you have to find your own voice okay. it however work. it's very it's very compelling it's very it's very seductive to just try and copy other people. But...
1: Right. Because in, in art school, you might begin, you know, studying the masters and, you know, and copying the, the paintings. But at this, at, at a certain point, you have to find your own way right. of expressing. And it's the same thing in writing.
0: Right. Tess Hadley. That's who said she did that. Ah, okay. Yes. Came to writing later, but spent decades. And thank God she kept at it. Cause, yes. You know, brilliant. But uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta find your own voice. I love that. Lisa Teasley. Thanks for coming back on. I'm glad we got to do this 16 years later. This was so fun.
1: Thank you. I had so much fun with you, Marie. Thank you so much for inviting me and for this conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Lisa Teasley talking about her new short story collection, Fluid. It will be out and available at the end of this month. It's published by CUNE Press. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.